From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Today, one of the most honest, raw, and eye-opening conversations I've had about youth suicide and teen mental health. My guest is an 18-year-old filmmaker from Manitou Springs, whose documentary, Surviving, is about his own struggles. What you will not hear today is an indictment of social media and smartphones. The way that people point to the internet uh, is, is kind of ridiculous, to be honest, because they don't want to admit that there are other culprits. Soren Santos lives in El Paso County, which has an especially high youth suicide rate. Later, you'll keep hearing the name Hickenlooper. He's now running for Senate. Also, Colorado's first Latin Fashion Week. And the secrets of the Silver Queen, Baby Doe Tabor. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. For parents, it might be one of the hardest things to hear from a child that they have tried to harm themselves. Last summer, Daddy had tried to kill myself up in the room while everyone was asleep, and I couldn't feel any part of my body, and I don't know why, but I stopped myself. That is 18-year-old Soren Santos of Manitou Springs in the documentary he made called Surviving, about his struggle with depression and his suicide attempt. In El Paso County, where Santos lives, the youth suicide rate doubled between 2012 and 2017. But we know this is an issue that faces the entire state. And uh, Soren, I'm so glad you're with us, and I, I mean that in every way. Thank you for having me. Your documentary, Surviving, screens tonight and it'll include a panel discussion about youth suicide. And Cassandra Walton will be on that panel. She's with Pikes Peak Suicide Prevention. Cassandra, thanks for being with us. I'm happy to be here. Soren, your film explores the physical health problems in your life that ultimately led to mental health issues. Uh, You had to undergo heart and brain surgery, both before you were 10. Can you help us understand how that affected you mentally? The mental effects of it kind of didn't kick in until I was in high school, kind of just because I went through elementary school and I was still going through it, so I didn't have time to process it. But it definitely kind of hit me all at once that not everyone experiences that. Uh, I definitely deal with PTSD. I'm, I'm pretty sure I'm the only one who ended up living like on the f- the hospital floor that I was in. So it's kind of a lot to deal with, knowing that out of a bunch of kids, you were kind of the only one who made it out. That is incredibly heavy. And so there's is there a guilt that comes with that, do you think? I mean, there's a guilt in the sense that, like, being the only one that lived, you... I mean, you kind of made it out, but then you... Not to be dark or anything but you kind of want to die anyway even though you made it through a bunch of stuff i struggle with a lot of like anxiety and depression and uh it kind of weighs heavy on you after a while and so i've dealt with a lot of suicidality just because uh i don't really feel like i'm worthy enough to live what do you tell yourself today when you have those thoughts uh, that you're not worthy enough uh, I'm kind of not in a better place yet. Um, I still struggle with it a lot. 
it kind of comes and goes in waves. Like, sometimes I feel better and then I relapse. So, I still haven't found something that helps me. Does it help to talk about it? Like, I wonder if even this conversation, is it is it helpful? Is it harmful? Is it neutral? Uh, I guess in a sense, it's both. I tend to bottle that kind of stuff up. So when I talk about it, it all kind of like comes out pretty quickly. But it is kind of nice to get it off of your chest. Do you find that other kids talk about this? I mean, yeah. Usually depressed people tend to draw other depressed people to them. So a lot of my friends talk about it. But that isn't necessarily something that brings you into a lighter place. That could make you feel worse. Yeah, it definitely depends on what you're talking about, who you're talking about. I want to say here that El Paso County Public Health reported 13 youth suicides in 2017, uh, nearly twice the number from three years prior. Uh, And I, I want to ask you, Cassandra Walton, from Pikes Peak Suicide Prevention, to reflect just first of all on what you've heard from Soren. Anything that you should help us digest there? As I sit here and listen to Soren, something that jumps out to me and I think is something that a lot of, especially adults, need to hear is that depression and suicidality is not something that can be healed, right? It's not going to go away tomorrow. You're not going to find this magic pill or this solution that's an, an answer to all of the problems. It's something that when someone is experiencing that, what I hear Soren describing is like this heavyweight bl- wet blanket that he's carrying around on him all the time. And some days are good and some days are bad. And I think a focus that a lot of especially adults have is this, I'm going to fix it. I'm going to make it better. I'm going to make it go away. When really the focus needs to be, how can I support you while you are in this? And let's face the reality that it may never go away. And then with that mindset, thinking about if I put myself in Soren's shoes and I had to wear that heavy wet blanket every day, what would be helpful for me and what would not be helpful? You see people posting things on Facebook like, decide to be happy today. It's up to you to create your own happiness. I think based on what Soren's describing and what other individuals who are experiencing similar things are describing to me, that is not only not true, but it's frustrating to hear over and over again, Mm. that there's something that you could be doing that you're not doing that could help you feel better and make all of this go away. And that's just not true. My goodness. So you say that it's possible it may never go away. Isn't that the least helpful, most hopeless thing that you could say to someone who's struggling with mental health? I think that the truth is sometimes painful. However, unless you look at something with realistic eyes, you aren't going to be able to figure out how to work your way through it. I also hear you saying that there can be steps to help in the moment, but there are no quick fixes. So help help me square that, um, the idea that there may be ways to help, and yet you don't want to come across as kind of too pat. Sure. So as I answer this question, I'm going to put my mom hat on because I have a 14-year-old daughter right now. She suffers uh, from depression, anxiety. In fact, when I watch Soren's movie, 
it really hit my heartstrings because it just reminded me so much of the words that I hear coming out of my own daughter's mouth. And as a parent, so you go on the internet, you Google, you find out what, what are the experts telling me that I should do. So I found her a therapist and then I'm anxiously waiting for that therapist to work. I'm anxiously waiting for her to suddenly tell me, mom, it's all better. And because of my hope, I'm putting those hopes onto her. And my message to her is, baby, we found a therapist. You're going to feel so much better. It's going to help you so much. And then there's this anxiety that she has because she's not experiencing relief. It's not helping as much as mommy said that it would. And should I be honest about that with my mom? Is it something that I'm doing wrong? And so as adults supporting our kids going through this, we really need to realize that okay, this therapist helped a little bit and I'm going to accept that little bit. I'm going to celebrate that little bit and we're going to keep searching for other things that might give relief. Soren, I'm curious what you think when you hear Cassandra talk about uh, the right ways for parents to speak to their kids. Does that ring true for you? Um, yeah. So I've been to quite a few therapists, quite a few therapists, but, um, So it it takes a lot of trial and error with mental illness. Like, especially with medication and therapy, you have to keep trying. And, you know, sometimes things will work for months or maybe years, and then it'll just stop working. That must be really frustrating. I mean, yeah, it is very frustrating. But um, when you feel relief when you're mentally ill, even if it's just a little bit, it feels like a lot because something that... um, people compare depression to is like the sense of drowning. So when you get relief from the sense of drowning every once in a while, it means a lot more than you would think it would. It can mean the whole world to spend maybe a single day not feeling like you always do. My goodness, that's so poetic. And uh, it's a ray of hope, I think, that sometimes the successes are short-lived, but that doesn't mean they're small. Cassandra, I get, I keep wanting to go back and forth between the two of you and just have you respond to each other. What do you think of what you heard there, Cassandra? I see that all the time with my daughter and some of the other teens who I get to spend time with. The days that are good, you just really have to appreciate those days and remember them. I always try to write them down and encourage my daughter to journal about them so that on those hard days you can remember that not every day is like that. And so it gives you something fond to remember, something good to hold on to, and something to look forward to in the future. Yeah, that is so important because I think of how my days, you know, that one can be amazing and the next can be nightmarish. And it's so helpful in the nightmarish days to, to think to myself, it won't always be this way. It has been other ways in my life. Soren, does that resonate? Yeah, it definitely does. Um, it is difficult, though, when you feel like you're suffering a lot uh, most days to see a silver lining. Let's talk through some of the culprits here. So I think that often when we talk about mental health, and especially in young people, there's a desire to point to social media. There's a desire to point to smartphones. Does being connected digitally, Soren, does that make your life better or worse? 
for me personally, I would say it makes me feel better, to be honest. Like, I found a lot of friends on the internet, especially since I play a lot of video games, so I, I get a lot of friends through that. And I think that the way that people point to the internet uh, is, is kind of ridiculous, to be honest, because they don't want to admit that there are other culprits, like going to school and like the school environment. No one wants to admit that things that they can control or they can help with are the culprits. So they want to point to something that they're like, well, I can't fix that. I mean, it's a little unfair, to be honest, when you can fix something and you just want to blame it on something else. What is it you think that people could fix, adults, I presume you mean? Uh, What is it you think they could fix in the school culture? I think that definitely the help you gain in school could be fixed a lot, like uh, counseling in school. I mean, we have counselors in place, obviously, but, you know, you would think they would be better if you have support in schools. So, like, why aren't kids getting the help they need? It's obviously going to take a lot to improve a school environment it can't just be one person but high school definitely contributed to a lot of the things that I struggled with and my parents obviously saw that um and a lot of people see that like the stressors that they put on us all kids have to be in an activity and like you always have to get all these things done there's so much pressure and then people act like oh you know kids of a younger generation that don't have any problems. I think it also is contributed to by a generational gap. Hmm. The idea that adults, what, they look at your life and they say, you have it easy compared to how I had it. Is that what I'm hearing you say? Uh, yeah, it's something I've uh, heard, not exactly along those lines, but especially with like the social media stuff, like, you know, older generations see the way we live. It's not exactly the way they lived. Obviously, there's been technological advances, and it's like, well, you know, kids shouldn't have these problems if they're surrounded by technology and things are made easier for them. So it's a big, like, overlooking the fact that people at the age of, like, 14 can have problems. Hmm. You're kind of overlooking the stressors that our generation has, especially with the state that... um our country, our world is in. Like, a lot of people in our generation are kind of, like, set up to the point, like, you're going to have to fix this eventually. This is the world you're living in. Do I hear you talking about, like, climate change? What What are you talking about? Not to get political or anything, but, I mean, it kind of has to be political sometimes. But we kind of live in a nation and stuff where, like, I mean, I mean, all generations now at this point, are kind of stuck having to deal with, like, this reverse in rights for certain, like, certain communities. Their rights are not where they used to be. And a lot of people at a young age are now having to step up. I don't know what her name is, but there's, like, this young girl who's working on climate change. She sat in on a lot of meetings. Like, kids from a young age now are set to fix things. It's a lot of pressure on our generation. Like you're talking about Greta Thunberg. That's what her name was. I don't know her name, but yes, her. Cassandra from Pikes Peak Suicide Prevention. I'd like to have you address the earlier point about counseling in schools, whether it's sufficient, uh, whether adults are too quick to go to a kind of scapegoat that's out of their control versus the things they could actually change. Yes. So in 2017, Pikes Peak Suicide Prevention in El Paso County 
did a research project that was titled The Teen Think Tanks. And we asked these questions to teens as far as how does social media impact you and what is social media for you? And most of the teens who we spoke to identified social media as a tool and a resource. Adults are very quick to say, oh, it's cyberbullying. Most of the teens who reported having suicidal thoughts, being bullied in person was more of a factor than being bullied online. And most of them described using social media to make connections in areas where they weren't getting connections in other ways. So let's say I'm having gender identity issues or I am dealing with social pressures at school. Well, I'm able to get online and talk to other individuals and connect with other individuals who can relate with my issues because there is so little face-to-face time between teens and adults. In all reality, the primary issue here is that we're not talking to our kids. If we were to ask our kids the question, how is social media impacting you? They would very clearly be able to explain to us that they use it as a resource. Do bad things happen on social media? Yes. Does cyberbullying occur? Yes. But I think if you weigh the pros and cons for each individual teen regarding social media, then you'll have different answers depending on the needs of that teen. And that is really the way resources should be handled. Do you think that there's ample mental health support in schools? No, absolutely not. That was the other thing that we talked about. You know, what school resources are you accessing? Are you aware of what is available? You know, and they, what they're constantly told is, go see your school counselor. Well, school counselors are not mental health professionals. That's not what they go to school for. They're there to provide academic support, to help these kids determine what classes they should take, to help them get on the route of life that they're looking to follow. And so not only is it unfair to the teens to send them to an unrealistic resource, it's unfair to the professionals who aren't equipped to deal with the problems that are being shoved in their face. The other issue regarding school counselors is that when we ask the teens, are you likely to approach your school counselor if you are feeling suicidal or if your friend is feeling suicidal? They said no. And that's because in most schools, the way a school counselor is assigned to you is by the letter of your name in the alphabet. And so we're asking them to have a very personal talk with someone who they don't necessarily have a relationship with. So again, they're able to go online and make personal connections with individuals who are getting to know them. And so that feels like more of a resource than people who are in real life because a title doesn't create a relationship that makes me want to confide in you, if that makes sense. The teens were able to identify other individuals in the schools that they would be more likely to go and approach if they or a friend were feeling suicidal. Teachers who they had a relationship with coaches, again, because they spend a lot of time with their coaches, and school resource officers. And so that, you know, begs the question, are we even targeting the right professionals to give them training to deal with these issues? Fascinating. Fascinating. I guess I'd like to wrap up uh, Soren Santos uh, by talking a little bit more about your film, Surviving, which you made with the Youth Documentary Academy. Have people benefited from this? Have you gotten feedback on it? And if so, has it been a healing project for you? So usually after showings, a few people come up to me and talk to me. People have been big on giving hugs. I love giving hugs. Um, (laughs) About how someone in their life is dealing with it, how they're dealing with it, how 
they've been affected by suicidality or a suicide in their life and how it's helped them a lot. It's supposed to reach a broader audience now, so hopefully I'll be able to reach more people through my film, even if I'm not there in person. Um, For me, personally, it hasn't healed me. Wait, it hasn't been the the miracle cure, that's what you're saying. (laughs) It hasn't (laughs) been the magical pill, unfortunately. I mean, obviously, I struggle with PTSD, so I kind of had to dig into some of the stuff in my past when I was making the film. So um, I wish that making the film did a little bit more for me. Um, It means a lot that it's helping other people, but I haven't found relief in making the film. Is it a dumb thing to say that after speaking with you, Soren, I, I really think you're remarkable and I hope you see it? Um, it's not dumb. I, I've been, I, I've kind of been told I'm sort of a poetic person, I guess. Um, I kind of, I sort of have self-confidence issues, so it's hard to take that in. Mm-hmm. But it's nice to hear that talking about the film and making the film has done a lot for other people. I want to thank you both for being with us, Soren and Cassandra. Thank you for having me. Thank you, yeah. 18-year-old Soren Santos of Manitou Springs joining us remotely. He's made the film Surviving with the Youth Documentary Academy. It screens tonight in Colorado Springs. Cassandra Walton of Pikes Peak Suicide Prevention will be on a panel with Soren afterwards. The documentary will air soon on Rocky Mountain PBS. Again, if you're struggling with a mental health issue... Here's how to contact Colorado Crisis Services. Text TALK to 38255. That's TALK to 38255. And we'll be back in the next half hour. The name Hickenlooper won't be fading away from Colorado's political landscape anytime soon. I'm Ryan Warner. You're with Colorado Matters from CPR News. It's Colorado. It's 2019. Weed is legal. It's not that unusual to see cannabis yoga classes, guided cannabis meditations, even cannabis churches. Now, using cannabis to meditate or worship is not a new thing. Rastafarians have been using it for almost 100 years. But in this new world of legalization, what changes when we're talking about weed and religion? Find out on the latest episode of CPR's new podcast, On Something, on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. You're with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. From one crowded race to another, Democrat John Hickenlooper announced this morning he's running for U.S. Senate. That's after ending his presidential bid. Word came in a video in which he immediately took aim at the Republican he wants to unseat. I don't think Cory Gardner understands that the games he's playing with Donald Trump and Mitch McConnell are hurting the people of Colorado. We ought to be working together to move this country forward and stop the political nonsense. But the former governor hasn't always spoken of the Senate job in glowing terms. Let's get some analysis from CPR public affairs reporter Benta Berkland. She's on the phone. Hi, Benta. Hi, Ryan. And let's start with the issues. Which ones are prompting the former governor to run for Senate? 
In the video released this morning, he mentions health care, specifically the cost of prescription drugs, and protecting coverage for pre-existing conditions. And Hickenlooper also talks about climate change and threats to public lands, leaving them, quote, to developers instead of sportsmen. That's his accusation of what the current administration is doing. In the past, Hickenlooper has sounded less than thrilled about serving in the Senate, though. Yes, that's right. He's never been a legislator, and he hasn't expressed interest in doing it. He's frequently said he likes to bring diverse groups of people together to try to solve big problems. And when he was governor, he wasn't heavily involved in the day-to-day legislative process. Uh, We all know he was a restaurateur, then Denver mayor, then governor. And of course, he was seeking the highest executive office in the land. And Ryan, here's what he told you about the Senate race earlier this year. What I'm good at, what I really enjoy the most, what I find rewarding is building a team and setting high goals and actually operating things. And whether you're running a restaurant or a city or a state or a country is the great challenge and the great opportunity. As a senator, most senators don't, you don't become even the vice chair of a, of a reasonably important committee into your third term. You know, I, by the time I got to my third term, I'd be 80. And so how Hickenlooper has talked about the job, saying he's not cut out for it, it, you know, it's already serving as ammunition for Republicans. A spokesman for the Republican National Committee said, quote, for months, John Hickenlooper told anyone who would listen that he would not make a good senator. We couldn't agree more. But, you know, people close to Hickenlooper that I've talked to, they expect this line of attack, and they don't think it'll be the major issue throughout the campaign. And Hickenlooper has said, look, the stakes are too high for Colorado and for the nation for him not to run. As I said at the start, Benta, Hickenlooper enters a crowded race to unseat Cory Gardner. He does. He's now the 12th candidate in the Democratic Senate primary and obviously starts with a lot of name recognition. He was a popular governor. The question is whether he sucks the air out of the room in terms of attention and fundraising from all the other candidates. And some of those people have already raised a lot of money and are building a strong grassroots network. A poll from former state senator Michael Johnston's campaign, and he's running, shows that Hickenlooper fares no better against Gardner than a generic Democrat. Hmm. Among likely voters in 2020, it was like 48% support compared to Gardner getting 38%. So, you know, when Hickenlooper jumped into the race, some candidates are taking a more measured approach in terms of, of their responses, and I think some will be more critical. And so we'll just be looking out to that dynamic. Okay, to, to fundraising, can Hickenlooper use any money left over from his presidential bid for his Senate run? Yep, generally yes, uh, although he has less than a million dollars on hand, and that's one thing we'll be watching closely to see how quickly he's raising money and how much in a crowded field this will be especially critically important. And other candidates in the race have raised uh, quite a bit of money, including Michael Johnston, Dan Baer, Andrew Romanoff, and John Walsh. Before we go, remind us the broader stakes of this Senate race, because it's it's not just going to be watched, of course, in Colorado, but nationally. Right. This seat held by Senator Gardner is one of the must-wins if Democrats are to succeed in flipping control of the U.S. Senate. Hickenlooper was courted by National Democrats and Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer to try to get him into the race. Um, of the Democrats I've talked to locally, Some are backing Hickenlooper, others support different candidates, but they all say they will unify around the eventual nominee. And along with the presidential race, this will be one of the most closely watched races in the nation. So voters here can expect millions of dollars spent and gear up for being inundated with political ads. 
I'm not sure how you gear up for that, but we will. Thanks, Benta. Thanks, Ryan. CPR's public affairs reporter Benta Berkland on former Democratic Governor John Hickenlooper jumping into the U.S. Senate race. Latin fashion is in the spotlight this week and in Denver with the first Latin Fashion Week Colorado. Designer and artist Norberto Mojardin is the organizer, a person so imaginative that he has made outfits from corn husks. And welcome to our program. No, thank you very much for the invitation. It's an honor for me to be with you guys today. An honor to talk to you. So opening night of Latin Fashion Week Colorado is Saturday with a fashion show of all local designers. That's the beginning event. What can we expect to see on the catwalk? Well, you know, uh, the beauty of all is that every designer uh, is really putting a lot of enthusiasm in their collection, dedicated specifically for this event. And I think that makes us so special to see, you know, um, we did the, the first night, the first night, which is uh, uh, Saturday, to honor our local designers first. So everybody, they're very, uh, very excited about this, um, this event. Have you been able to see any of the outfits that they've created especially for opening night? <laughs> Nobody wants to show me anything. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> no previews. You know, they send little pics, uh, or, uh, you know, I see them sewing or embroidering details, um, but, you know, they, they're keeping it very private and, but you know you can see the the textures that they're using. Uh, they're getting uh, away from comfort zones, you know, that they've been doing. So you know, bringing this project, it, it brings them. I feel inspiration also, you know. So uh, it's it's gonna be an honor to to work with all of them. Uh, you talked about embroidery, so it sounds like there is some time intensive work going on in in these. Uh uh, last hours, I guess, before and days before the, the catwalk is strutted. Okay, why do you think Colorado needed a Latin fashion week? Well, you know, when, when it, and that's a question that a lot of people ask, and, and this is not specifically, uh, you know, we, we have uh, a stereotype when you mention the word Latin automatically. Hmm. Uh, we said, uh, uh, comes to our mind, folk dancers from Mexico, Mexican food, you know, and and we need to, and, and, and the reason why we created this is to stop the stereotype on the Latin. A lot of people, uh, especially I do hair, and when people are sitting in my chair, they're like, can you believe it, they told me that I'm from Mexico when she's from Venezuela or Colombia or Cuba. So the idea was to create this project it was more educational that our uh we as latin i mean we were different shades of skin size height and we most of them we have you know a mix like for me i'm japanese italian and and native american and so uh, this is more uh, into educational on diversity and I think this is going to bring, you know, unity into the uh, fashion industry, but not only that, uh, in the arts also. So, 
I just want to say that you own a hair salon, so you've had conversations of this nature while uh, clients have been in your chair. Uh, you'll be showing a recent collection of your own for this event. What was your inspiration for the uh, collection you'll show? Yeah, uh, my inspiration on, 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 on this one, as you see, some of my work, you know, is everything is uh, either done with uh, recycled materials or handmade uh, this collection in particular is um, is hand painted. Everything is is very very colorful, and I'm using also. And some of the pieces are made out of paper mache. The whole dress is made out of paper. So, um, and the idea of this is, you know, uh, that we the message is to respect the artisans, the indigenous, that they have their own textiles for generations. Uh, and so for designers just to come out and use their textiles to put collections uh, i know some of them they would like to honor them but i think we can be more creative than that and that's what i'm bringing for for our new designers or our coming designers is to let them know that if they see something that they like they can use it as an inspiration but they can come out with their own idea and when you see this collection hand painted you might think it's from certain part of mexico but when you really look at it, it's just the inspiration of that. Mm. So, uh, you know. I, I'm fascinated by this idea that you've made outfits from corn husks. Is is corn husk hard to deal with as a material? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I think when you have the imagination and when you really want to do it, you can. the idea comes up by itself, to be honest. Um, sometimes I'm just sitting and saying, okay, this is, what's we're, this is what we're going to do. And... It's just uh, implementing uh, uh, the concepts, you know, like if, if the way that you cut uh, paper, you're cutting the, the, the leaves of the corn husk and you can make roses, leaves, uh, uh, patterns, you know. So for me, to be honest with you, it, it comes very natural to, to create it. And of course, I'm sharing this with other uh, designers too. Ah, well, that's nice of you, so that they pick up these abilities, these sensibilities. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we're speaking with Denver fashion designer Norberto Mojardin. He organized Latin Fashion Week Colorado, which opens this weekend. Uh, Norberto, I, I have a broader fashion question for you. Uh, it's twofold. The first part is, what, I don't know, accessory or article of clothing do you think people should be wearing that they are not wearing right now? You know, <laughs> that's a great question. For me, the way that I think, you know, everybody can wear anything they want. Anybody can, um, you know, for me, I don't, I'm, I think I'm the worst person to let you know what you should wear for the event <laughs> because I promote diversity. <laughs> I, I promote being yourself. I think uh, people should wear something that makes them happy. Something that I makes them happy. What, 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 what is making exactly. you happy to wear these days? You know, uh, for me, when I go to the salon, I wear black because, you know, <laughs> I have gets paint on my clothes. And, you know, uh, for me, I love colorful, uh, colorful clothing uh, when I'm at home. And so, you know... This is, this is a good question. I'm not a person that would tell you you have to wear this color because it matches with this. Uh, I think everybody will have a common sense of what we should wear as uh, professionals. 
we know that you know like for me uh, you know if i go to a, a black tie event i'm an artist and i don't feel comfortable with a black tie but i can create a tie with some art work on the tie so i think everybody should be creative with what they wear as long as they're happy and comfortable you know so I understand that you're. I, we we are not face to face right now, and my produ- <laughs> my producer is face to face with you and tells me that you're wearing a bright yellow shirt. So that that explosion of color, I suppose, is is demonstrated even in what you're wearing today. Okay, now that yeah, and that's my favorite one too. So oh, your favorite yellow shirt. The second part of this question is: Is there something in fashion you're sick of? Is there a, an article of clothing or <laughs> an accessory that you think you see too much of? No, you know, I I think. Uh... For me, uh, to be, and I'm being very honest, for me, I get it as it comes. Uh, uh, before making any comment, I always am the type of person that really thinks before opens their mouth. So hmm. I always try to find the positive uh, side of it. And, you know, if it's something that very old now is coming into fashion, and that's why we should be more welcome to that. Uh, for me, I love the countryside from Mexico, from the U.S., um, you know, so I'm very open to be honest with you. I yeah, don't get sick you, of, you're of, not, of of things. And you're not catty. You know, I think a lot of fashion can be really catty. Um, let's, yeah, yeah. Let's trust re- me. Trust, <laughs> trust me. That happens. <laughs> <laughs> I've been I've been with them in the market for a while, and and I think that's what I don't want this to 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 end up. I don't want to people to feel welcome and 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 be very inclusive with what we're doing. So. <laughs> Uh, and on that note, I'll just mention that you really do want to showcase in coming years a diverse spectrum of local designers. And so while this year might be Latin, Latin Fashion Week, uh, maybe next year will be African Fashion Week or Asian Fashion Week Colorado. Uh, the idea, once again, of underscoring the diversity of designers here. Thanks so much, Noberto, for being with us. I really appreciate it. No, no, no. Thank you. And, and, you know, I hope to see you guys there. You guys have your front seats already done. <laughs> oh, OK. I'll just have to rack my brain for what to wear. Denver fashion designer Norberto Mojardin. He organized Latin Fashion Week Colorado, which opens this weekend. Elizabeth Tabor Nicknamed Baby Doe, has captured imaginations for more than a century. Her rags-to-riches-to-rags-again story has inspired biographies, a film, even an opera. She came to Colorado in the 1870s during the gold rush, divorced her first husband, and later married Colorado's silver king, Horace Tabor. Well, there's a new historical novel based on her life called Gold Digger, the Remarkable Baby Doe Tabor Story. Author Rebecca Rosenberg speaks with my colleague Avery Lill. Of all of the figures in Colorado history, why does Baby Doe Tabor capture your imagination? I really think that Baby Doe captures what little girls all hope to do, which is to grow up and live their exciting dream, the adventures that they can imagine. And Baby Doe did that. She came west for to mine a gold mine with her husband in um, 1878. And he abandoned her when she was pregnant, and she was left to mine that gold mine alone. So she not only did that and became a local legend, 
But then she moved to Leadville, Colorado, where she met Horace Tabor. And at the time, Horace Tabor was not famous, and he hadn't discovered his silver mine yet. But shortly thereafter, he discovered the largest silver vein in history and became mayor and governor, lieutenant governor, and a U.S. senator, all while loving baby doe. And theirs was an adventurous, exciting life. And there are so many pieces to that life. Let's back up a little bit. Before she was Baby Doe Tabor, she was Elizabeth Doe, married to Harvey Doe. They moved to Central City, Colorado, from Wisconsin to mine for gold. And that's probably where she got their nickname, Baby Doe. What was life like for a woman in a mining town back then? Well, back then, there weren't very many women at all. And the people that were in Central City were actually Chinese laborers and Indians and desperados like Doc Holliday and Jesse James trying to mine for gold. And here she is. She was a devout Catholic and just a young 22-year-old girl. And she enters Central City, this wild town, um, and it was purely frightening. And so really what she wanted to do is get up and mine that gold and get back to Oshkosh, Wisconsin, where it was safe. And she did. A, she assisted with mining. She wore men's clothes and she really dove into it. How did she fit in? Well, she really didn't fit in at all because she, first of all, she was Catholic. She was a devout Catholic and there was a Catholic church in Central City. You can still see that today. But most everybody else was Protestant, so they didn't like her Catholic ways. And then she was so beautiful. You just have to Google her to see how gorgeous she is. And um, they didn't like that either because there weren't very many men, and they were all ogling the baby doe. So she didn't fit in right from the beginning. And despite the name of the book, gold digging really didn't work out for Baby Doe. Like you mentioned, she ended up divorcing her husband. What happened there? Well, it was just that he was a rich guy from Oshkosh, Wisconsin. He had inherited this gold mine from his father, and he started drinking and carousing with the... They did have prostitutes in these mining towns. They called them... They were lived in the cribs. And so she was found herself abandoned, and she knew she was pregnant, and it was winter, and so she was actually saved by one of the um, town haberdasher who helped her, which was Jake Sands, and he helped her and moved her to Leadville, Colorado. So then she said she had to divorce Harvey because he had abandoned her. And that was very difficult to do because only half a percent of people ever divorced in those days. But she did it, and she worked in the haberdashery in Leadville. And while she was in Leadville, she falls in love with Horace Tabor. Tell us a little bit more about who he was. Well, at that time, Horace Tabor was mayor of Leadville, and he had just been made mayor. And the year before, he had just struck that biggest silver mine in history, the biggest silver vein, and that was the Pittsburgh mine up there. And they had made him mayor. And Leadville, if you can believe it, went from 200 people in this little mining camp to the next year it was 5,000 people. The year after it was 20,000 people. The year after that, it was 40,000 people. 
So that was an amazing thing that Horace Tabor had to wrestle down as mayor. And so he got involved with doing newspapers, doing water treatment plants, if you can believe that, then doing fire stations. He was an amazing entrepreneur. And, of course, Horace was already married, and you portray his marriage to his first wife, Augusta, as pretty rocky. What do we know about Horace and Baby Doe's affair and eventual marriage? Um, They were really a love story, but let's go back to Augusta Tabor. She had been with Horace for 20 years. They had been married for 20 years, and they had had mercantiles in all of the gold country, and they were just scraping by a living. But what Horace always wanted to do is run off and be a prospector. So that's why Augusta Tabor was always mad at him. She wanted him to stay in the mercantile and help her, and he was the postmaster. So he should have been there by her side helping her. So she was never kind to him, and that's really historical from what I have been able to find out, that she was didn't treat him very nicely. So, of course, when he meets this beautiful baby doe who had been mining a gold mine alone, and he all of a sudden is this miner who is buying up hundreds of mines now that he has money, they really hit it off. So theirs was a match made in heaven, except that he had to hide her away as his mistress, and she hated that. So she was in the um, penthouse in Denver at the Windsor Hotel, and then Augusta Tabor was in the big Tabor mansion. And Baby Doe just hated that and wanted to leave, but she was so in love with Horace Tabor. Now, your novel continues to trace their relationship through the silver crash of the 1890s and eventually to Horace's death. But I want to talk a little bit more about just how you dramatize historical fiction. This book is a novel and you've rearranged some of the parts of history and imagined some relationships. How do you make those choices and where did you draw your historical information? Where I really turned the corner on that was reading all of Baby Doe's diaries at History Colorado. And that's what's so exciting is that now we get to present Gold Digger and the life of Baby Doe at History Colorado, August 26th, which is Monday at 1 o'clock. Because she wrote from her heart, and I could really see what kind of woman she was, how religious she was, how much the affair hurt her, how when she was shunned by all of Denver for marrying Horace Tabor, that it really hurts so much. So it's, it's wonderful to be able to read her actual writings and be able to tell her story in Gold Digger. And one of the choices that you made is in this historical fiction that really intrigued me, Jin Lin Su is a real person. He was called the mayor of Chinatown. There isn't necessarily evidence that he knew Baby Doe, but he's really important in your novel. He looks out for her and a couple of times saves her life. Can you talk to me about that choice? Yeah. So I found out about Chin Lin Su from my friend here in California. I was telling him I was writing this novel, and he told me that his great-great-grandfather had managed all the Chinese crews that were mining in Central City. Then when I found out that he was there when Baby Doe was there, 
I realized that there was a strong possibility that they did know each other because he was he was the boss of all the Chinese crews, and she had a gold mine. So I did um, make that leap and make him very important in the story. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. My colleague Avery Lill speaking with Rebecca Rosenberg, author of Gold Digger, The Remarkable Baby Doe Tabor. I'm Ryan Warner. That's Colorado Matters Today from CPR News.